Welcome to another episode of Fertello on Air. I'm Mike Stockton coming to you from Frankfurt am Main, Germany. <laughs> and I'm Balash Renzi coming to you from Karlsruhe, uh, Germany. And, and um, last but not least. Yeah, I'm Jörg Leppelink and I'm coming to you from The Hague in the Netherlands. Wow. We've got a guest. Look at that. York. Yes, international sir. podcast. I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? Quite well, thanks. Hey, I always wanted to ask, Vepelink, yeah. does that mean anything? Does that translate to anything? Like uh, Schmetterling yeah, in yes, German? It, it, actually, it does. Um, the I-N-K in the end uh, means you're from the land of, so from the estate of. So I am from the estate called Weppel. That's basically what it is. Wow. So that's yeah. like von in German? Yeah, you could say that, yeah. And it's very specific to the region I actually uh, come from the uh, in the east of Holland. It's close to Germany, so um, it's you see names pop up with I-N-K or I-N-G at the end quite a bit uh, over there. So our, our mutual friend who we've all met, Johan, who has an ink at the end of his exactly. name, he's from the town of Egg. <laughs> Very true. No. <laughs> wow. Let's ask him. <laughs> yeah, we should. We should. <laughs> so, um, well, and Balash, how are you? Uh, same old. Um, actually, the I at the end of my name also means that I'm from the place called Ferenc. That's Ferenci. Funny. Mm. Just should say that. Um, but uh, it's true. Not a joke. Uh, but yeah, everything is fine. I mean, you know, as always, lockdown. As always, nothing's open. As always, uh, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen next week, next month. Welcome to Germany. Yeah, and your hair, by the way, is looking good, I have to say. Yeah, I told you a couple of episodes ago, I'm like a, a Canadian hockey player in the playoffs. <laughs> I'm going with that look. The Yaramir Yager look from the uh, early <laughs> no, no, days no. in Pittsburgh? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not a Pittsburgh fan. I was a Detroit Red Wings fan. and uh, But they had the Russians who had pretty much the same type of hairstyle, but no. But I'm I'm not gonna cut until I get the Stanley Cup. But actually, I I, I think uh, barbershops can open the first of March, and I have m my appointment for the first of March. But I love the look, man. I might go for you know I I keep the mullet growing. We'll see. Yeah, why not? Why not? We'll see. <laughs> well, good to hear you both are doing well. I am obviously not that far from you, Balash, and it is the same here. It is. Um, yeah, everybody talks about Groundhog Day, but I, I talk about it here. Like Sunday night, I go to sleep and I think, you know, tomorrow's the start of a new week, but it's actually the start of a week that was just like last week. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah. one thing was like we had crazy weather, right? Like we had like minus, minus four during the day and minus 10 at night. And now it's like plus 10 and 12 during the day and like plus one or two at night in like two days. We literally went from like minus four to plus 12. Yeah. In two days. And it was snow and ice, and now it's gone. Now yeah. it's spring. Boom. Yeah. I, I think um, that's that's a really good thing. And I think you guys um, up there in the Netherlands, Jorg, had all these pictures of uh, snow and frozen ponds and everything. Yeah, exactly. We had quite a bit of snow, actually, over the last week from 
Saturday to Sunday, to last Sunday. But just like Balashad, it disappeared in a day or two when it was from minus 10 up to 10 degrees. So, um, yeah, the snow is pretty much all gone. And uh, honestly, I'm quite relieved that it's gone because after the initial fun, uh, it becomes mushy and messy. So, uh, no, I couldn't. Uh, uh, I, I was happy that it was actually uh, gone yesterday. Well, it's good to hear. And uh, I hope things are, are freeing up there. We heard in uh, the Netherlands somebody sued and said that uh, curfew is against the Constitution or something like that. Is that right? <laughs> well, it's a very technical thing, yeah. But some guys um, um, had the curfew thrown out because it was based on the – it was actually implemented uh, with the wrong – uh, law, so um, that's what they successfully fought the state on, um, and now it's been suspended until Friday, and that's when the uh, the appeal is actually due in court. So um, it's still pending, actually. Well, but it's a good thing that dying of a virus is not against the constitution. So no, I mean I can tell you the guy that's actually um, started the uh, the whole the whole thing is um, is notoriously known as a, um, a non-believer of uh, the virus, and he believes in uh, uh, the autonomy of the human being. So, uh, well, that probably tells you everything you need to know. Wow. Well, I, I think uh, the the virus has taught us one thing that is consistent with every other issue in life: is that uh, lawyers um, somehow get a business out of everything, right? <laughs> yeah, they benefit from everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, this is uh, this is fun to have three of us here together and. We said uh, a couple episodes that uh, ago that we were going to come back and talk about this idea of scarcity, and we're going to break that down into a couple subtopics. Um, but first, as we always do, we are going to start off with a come on, Balash, handling controller. Yes, sexy, my man. <laughs> so your well, that's a macadamian voice. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Jorg, as you are our special guest, you get to go first and tell us what you are rocking on your wrist. I'm actually wearing, and this will not surprise you guys, I'm actually wearing one of my uh, Unimatic watches. It's Ooh. the um, Unimatic U, uh, Modelo Uno U1F, actually. So that's the one of two I actually had in for review and you guys saw uh, last summer. And this is actually the um, the most regular out of the two. So it's a, a minimalist diver um, that actually has a diving skill on the, on the bezel. Um, and um, I have to say um, both of these watches um, are really, really well done. Um, I tend to wear them even more minimalist uh, U1FM a bit more, but... This is this has grown on me to be honest with you. So, uh, is that your go-to, go-to Unimatic? No, lately it has been the new one. Actually, they released a new Modelo Quattro, the fourth model, actually, um, in December, which I reviewed on Fratello as well, um, and uh, that has really grown on me um, because it has a fixed steel bezel, actually, um, and it is a uh, is a military watch, military style watch, I should say, and. Um, at first, it looked like a really big chunk of steel, but um, once you start wearing it, it's actually um, very cleverly designed and engineered. And I have to say, that's the one that I've been wearing the most over these last couple of weeks. 
So have you have you actually bought all these? Uh, do you have what two or three of them now? Or I, yeah, I actually have uh, three of them now, and I bought these from uh, from the guys from Unimatic. Yeah. Wow, nice. I, I kind of would have liked to have seen you with the SpongeBob model. I have to admit, <laughs> I know actually that Balash likes it. I like it. I like yeah. it. Fu- I think it's funny. It it's, is funny. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, come on. You see all these Swatch watches, right? Mickey Mouse, and you know, I mean, those are nice watches. I love the Mickey Mouse watch, for example, but. Come on, this Swatch should be the only one to make those kind of watches. No, I like it. Yeah, no, I I think they're neat, and I I think when uh, we visited you in September, that was the first time I'd actually seen one in person, and mm-hmm. they're really nice. I mean, they they are nice, and when you actually look at the price, okay, that the the movements inside are nothing super special. They're NH thirty fives, I guess, but the the watches are cool. There's no doubt. Absolutely, sure. they they wear very well as well. They're forty millimeters. They're um, quite quite nice to actually uh, have on your wrist. Um, I don't want to dwell too much on Unimatic, but I just saw on their Instagram that they are selling a football jersey now. They are. What's that all about? And to when can I see you, you know, sporting one of those? With you, you know? I won't be rocking a, rocking a football jersey anytime soon. I can tell you that. <laughs> I saw it as well. I don't know. I um, I would have to ask uh, uh, Giovanni, who's one of the owners, uh, whether he is a big football fan, actually. Uh, probably. Uh, In Italy, probably. you have to. He's, he's Italian. He's from Milan. So uh, that will probably say uh, everything you need to know. Um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So when you jersey. say football, you mean? Soccer. Soccer. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Understood. Okay. And Balash, mm-hmm. what are you wearing today? I'm wearing my GMT 1675. Um, Rolex GMT. And um, why am I wearing this? I don't know. At the last few weeks, I've been wearing the Nevada Depth Master, which I reviewed for Fratello. And then I wore the Tissot PRX. Uh, which I also reviewed for Fratello. And uh, Jorg and I talked about this yesterday when we wanted to record a podcast. You can join. We're talking about integrated bracelet watches. And uh, both watches are lovely. I loved, uh, really enjoyed both of them, but they're very different, right? The, the Death Master was a 39 millimeter, you know, kind of a cushion, or like this baby Panerai is the nickname of the vintage one, as you know, Mike. So it's kind of a vintage inspired. And the PRX is also vintage inspired, but it's large. So I wore those and then I I sent them back and I, oh I also wore the new Speedmaster I got the the Sapphire sandwich for a few days and I just wanted to come back to one of my pieces so I took the the GMT out today. Wow, you've really been flooded with watches lately. Man, it's you know it's perks of being a Fratello editor. No, but it's been really it's been quite busy these last few days or weeks. It's usually not like that. Just everybody just happened to send the watches at the same time. But um, but it was cool. It was nice because I had you know I had one for a few days and then another one and then another one and um, it's all interesting watches. Really liked them, all of them. I have to say, all three of them. Nice. Well, I'm glad you wore that Rolex because it is incredibly rare and scarce. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, where's the drum? I can't find it. Anyways. Um, But what are you wearing, Mike? So I went with something kind of wild that I have to admit I I put on when I got home and um, only because I've been watching it for the past couple of days and it is actually keeping time. I I bought this watch... probably a year and a half ago. And I 
thought it was dead and and I actually don't think it was moving, but I opened up the back to change the battery and I jiggled some stuff around and, and now it seems to be fine, but it is a, all right, you won't know what this is, but, um, well, maybe it will, but it is, it is called the Think the Earth WN1, which was made by Seiko and in, I believe, sold by a company called uh, Spaceport Incorporated. And this watch dates from 2006. And it, I don't know how to explain it. It's got a 24 hour bezel that you can unscrew bayonet style. And then the the actual watch movement itself, you can lift out in order to adjust the time. And it's got a huge bubble. And inside this bubble is a globe. And the globe actually rotates around after 24 hours. And um, the hours... So how does it show the time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's like a little, um, kind of like a little silver needle that moves counterclockwise to show the hours, which is moving like the Earth counterclockwise. And then the minutes move clockwise with a little orange orb that's like a satellite mm. around the Earth. It, it is truly wild. So it's 45 millimeters. Um, Amazing list thing is like water resistant to um, 100 meters, and it. I don't. I don't know what the the thickness is. I would bet you it's got to be damn near 20 millimeters. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm just googling the pictures. It's pretty pretty wild indeed. It is wild, um, and it comes on this cloth strap, and it's actually because there are no lugs. You know, 45 millimeters all around. All around, it fits pretty well. I mean, obviously with the height, it, um, it wouldn't make for the most suitable everyday wear, but it's definitely a conversation piece. And I, I bought this, I guess a couple years ago out of Japan, uh, used obviously, but they go for, I would say anywhere from about 800 to $1,500. And, mm -hmm. um, I just wanted one. It was just such a weird watch that I wanted to add to my Seiko collection. And after kind of watching a few, I stumbled upon one that I, I won for a decent, decent price. So yeah, I I've never written an article about it. And now that I know that it's working and I'm spending some more time with it, I, I will do so. So do you have to pay, pay attention to that crystal? If you crack it, <laughs> good luck finding a new one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and you know, you know, it's Seiko cause the crystal actually is hard Lex. So it's, mm. um, and can you take, I mean, because I see some pictures and I said, I'm just Googling it. Can you take out the, the center case with the movement? Like you, you unscrew the bezel and you can put on like a, a two-tone bezel on it or? So the two-tone is the second generation one. I guess they made, I don't know how many years later. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's almost got like, yeah, that day night black and white bezel. This one is mm -hmm. the steel one. And yeah, you just, you just unscrew it and then you pop that bubble out and then you can more easily access the crown and set the time. So Very it's funky. Cool. It's, interesting. it's different. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, that, so that's that. Um, and let's go ahead and move on to the news where we've got one real story and Balash, since you were on the up and up on this, why don't you let us know what you've yeah. found out? Yeah, it's just uh, obviously we're going to talk about Watches and Wonders uh, in the upcoming episodes because it's going to be happening in early April. Um, but um, 
it's going to be from the 7th of april to the 13th of april uh so we still have time but i just checked the um the list of brands that's that gonna be uh, watches and wonders and you know we saw that other than the usual suspects and richmond there's gonna be the lvmh brands as well as patek and rolex so this year it's gonna be a pretty interesting uh well sadly online um event um coming from geneva watches and wonders um but with patek and rolex and every um lvmh brand as well as richmond so it's it's quite the lineup i have to say obviously missing all the 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 uh, swatch group brands and obviously missing a lot of the independents and smaller brands like um you know sin and stuff like that but still it seems that the watch world is moving to whatever direction again hopefully yeah and and yeah with with that huge group there you know, what is going to be left of, uh, whatever Basil's calling itself now? Um, not, not much, yeah. right? Not probably a lot of the, the smaller independent brands and obviously the brands that are usually at Basel, but not at the fair, you know, so in the city, but not at the fair. Um, we'll see. I mean, I'm not really a fan of online events anyways, but for the time being, what can you do, right? It's, it is what it is now. So, so this means we will get new scarce and rare Rolex and Patek models in just several months, right? Yes. Sadly, I'm happy that we're going to get new models, but sadly they're going to be scarce and rare in, in no time, I think. And Jorg, I, you know, we're going to put you on the spot. What are you hoping to see from Rolex? Ooh. Ooh, good question. Tough one. Well, don't answer well, all at once here, Jorg. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Tyson Stockton. Uh, I have to be honest with you. There's not something I would really like to see. Um, no, mainly because of... Um, I wrote an article not too long ago about um, saying goodbye to... Um, uh, actually buying a new Rolex. don't know if you guys read that, but um, the, I, I'm more fascinated by the phenomenon of actually um, the hype that surrounded um, Rolex, which we're going to touch upon probably. But no, um, just to answer your question, I don't have anything from Rolex, which I would definitely like to see. Mm. How about you, Balash? Anything from you? I mean, they, you know, they released uh, the new subs last year, um, a few years ago, Daytona. I've read some articles contemplating about the new Explorer 2 um, with ceramic bezel and whatnot. Mm, yeah. <laughs> At this point, I don't really care too much. About <laughs> I mean, to is it, is it going to be as simple as would we like to see a DMT master on a oyster bracelet, stuff like that? Or? Mm, um, uh, no, I mean, the, the, I, like the, I like the Explorer 2. I know that the original ones, I think they're nice watches. Uh, I think they're interesting. Uh, I know they were a lot, you know, flying under the radar for many, many years. But I think they're cool watches. I don't really like the new ones, the the, the later models, the bigger ones. I like the older ones. Um, seeing a new one with a, with a ceramic bezel, I guess that's the next logical step, right? Uh, if you want to update uh, or upgrade the look. We'll see. But I'm not really, you know. Yeah. Too, too fussed about it. We'll see. What about yeah. you, Mike? Yeah, I I mean, I don't know what they do with the uh with the Explorer 2. I I've seen these renders people have come out with with a 
black um, ceramic bezel on that watch, and I honestly don't think it looks very good. Um, I think I, I, I've mentioned before, maybe even on this podcast, that when I moved over here, I think within the first year or so, I was kind of dead set on getting that new Explorer at the time, like in 2011 when it came out, I think, and 2012. <clears throat> they hit the boutiques here and they were in the windows and I went in and tried one on and I would, you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't will myself to buy it. It just did not fit my wrist. It just looked like a big pancake and it wasn't really the diameter. It just like looked flat and it just didn't fit well. Uh, I never see people wearing that watch, you know, never. So the, I, the, the new, the new Explorer two, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I see a few in Germany. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I know it not, was a, not many though. It was a really big deal when it came out because, of course, this was just hearkening back to the 1655 with the orange hand, and I sure liked the pictures. I just just really didn't fit me, so never really thought about it much since. Uh, so I hope it's not just a bezel change. That would be kind of disappointing. I'd like to see him bring the size down again a little bit, but I don't know. So. Um, you know, with, with that talk about Rolex, let's transition into our main topic. And, you know, this is a a pretty wide topic. So just with time in mind, we're going to, we're going to limit it to, you know, 30 odd minutes or so of talking about this idea behind scarcity and rarity. And I think Jorg really hit upon it, you know, the, this phenomenon that surrounds some of these watches like Rolex or a Nautilus or a Royal Oak um, and how these things just disappear. You know, you just haven't seen them in stores in years and years and years. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. And, and maybe we talk also a little bit about what we actually think the, the long-term effect of this is or, you know, what is the effect on, on the industry and does it end up alienating people where they just swear off watches or do they actually go and, and choose other things that are more accessible? So Balash, why don't you give us some thoughts? Um, if we talk about Rolex specifically, um, I don't quite like this phenomena. I don't quite like the bubble effect. Um, we talked about this before, I think, Mike, you and I, in, in this podcast, or at least touched upon this topic. I think it kind of kills the 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 fun a bit, um, because these watches are not, you know, not cheap when you look at the list prices. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and that's one thing, but I personally would never put my name down on a waiting list for any of those watches. There's there's no watch. I mean, okay, maybe there there is, but right now, when it comes to new watches, what I can say is right now, there is no watch in the world where I would go and put my name down because I want it so much. Because I know that it's, or I think that I know that it's a scam. And it's a scam not by Rolex, or I hope it's not by the brand, but it's by oftentimes the, the, the dealers, you know. Uh, the watch is not available. You need to wait three years, four years, and poof, then this guy has it, that guy has it. And there's 15 listed on all kinds of uh, websites. How come? Where are those watches coming from? Yeah, they're coming from somewhere, right? Exactly. So 
you know, people say that Rolex uh, produces a million watches a year. I don't know if that's true or not. And even if they do a million, it could be 900,000 Datejust and 100,000 sports models. Obviously not, but I'm just exaggerating. You know, I don't know the numbers, so I can't say anything. But what I can say is if I look at the numbers, if I look at the reference numbers on, as I said, on certain platforms, there's 10 of them, 15, 30, 80. Where are those watches coming from? And then I go into the the dealer and, ah, no, we have to put you on a waiting list. It's going to be five years, six years, 15 years before you can get a 36-day just, man, come on. Yeah. That's that's not fun, I think. And I I think I've told the story and I heard that there was a dealer here. I'm not going to say where and I'm going to say who where um, a guy got a, 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 a one of the very desired um, steel sports model. And the guy was a flipper. They sold the watch to him. He flipped the next day. A month after that, the guy's son gets a phone call from the same dealer. We got the same watch. He, he put his name down for the same watch. Get the same watch. They sold him the watch, flipped it the next day. Yeah. And, and, Come on. and, and yeah, like we discussed, I mean, at that point you're saying to yourself, okay, this, this becomes an inside job, right? This is, um, this is, uh, it's gotta be, yeah, it's a dealer who's, who's said, okay, I sell to this person, they go out and flip it and they kick back some, kick back some money. And then we, we all walk away happy, um, uh, except for the people who I mean, walk not- in and, and actually <laughs> want to buy a watch and wear it. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if they do kick back. You know, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I don't know. I really don't know. But yeah. But it's out there. I mean, I've been to the watches and uh, um, um, oh, what's the fair in New York uh, done by Watch Time two years ago? Mm. I've seen and I had we had to queue up to get in right before the the, the show opened. There's wind up and Warren Bond and then also Watch Time um, fair um, in New York. I saw at least seven Batmans. Okay, New York is New York, right? There's, of course, there are hundreds of dealers, but still, you have thirty people and se- or forty people, and seven of them wearing Batmans. Yeah. Is that such a rare watch? Apparently not. <laughs> yeah. How about you, York? What are your thoughts? Well, what Balas is referring to is obviously the whole uh, dealer shenanigans where we're discussing. Uh, the thing that interests me is. Um, Rolex itself, their production numbers, would they like to up the production uh, to meet, maybe not meet the demand, but at least up it so more people can enjoy their watches. And as it seems right now, they're not putting in any effort at all to uh, to meet the demand. And I understand it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a luxury world. So you always want to have more demand than you would have to have supply. So that keeps it keeps uh, people wanting your watches, but still, there is a big discrepancy up till the point where people actually start hating on your brand, and that's where I think it becomes a bit dangerous to, uh, yeah, to do what they are doing. And um, unless you basically don't really care, which could also be a strategy, and the Rolex um, has been known to um, go their own way. Um, so, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think they can. Um, I think the question is. Um, and that's a genuine question, seeing as you know, you guys know my background is in brand development and, um, and marketing strategy is whether they um, were prepared for such an explosive um, growth in demand in itself. I mean, uh, you don't have the production capacity up in 
a year or maybe two year two years um, up to the level where you want it to be right i mean that's a, that's an honest question i um, i um, seriously doubt whether rolex would even be uh, surprised by the by the boom in uh, in demand that we're seeing right now i don't know how you guys feel about that yeah i i don't know i mean it it, it makes things hard because yes they are they're notoriously silent about these uh, topics or about every topic, right? They, they release, um, they release their watches and, and, and that's that. So I think the, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think really, you know, you guys mentioned a dealer behavior and, you know, I, I, I was I was laughing, like thinking about preparing for this episode a bit. And there was this article that hit the other day about one of the more famous Chicago-based um, ADs. I think they carry, um, well, they definitely carry Rolex, uh, Patek. And yeah, there's a lawsuit now. Um, it says by WatchPro reported this, that uh, a former employee is accusing the company of covering up a conspiracy to illegally sell Rolex watches to foreign gray market resellers in order to enrich themselves. And there's even talk in here about how the employee was reprimanded or something for sounds like either showing or selling a watch that really wasn't supposed to be sold to a customer. Um, it was supposed to go in another direction. And I don't know. I, you know, I think <laughs> the problem is the market is there, right? And you're a seller and it, it, it the temptation must always be there, right? To double the money. That's and it. why, but why is it double the money? I don't know. I, I don't know. And it's interesting. Um, I remember a couple of years back and I feel like this happens in the, in the U S more, um, Anyhow, but that Ford, when they came out with their uh, supercar, the GT, uh, a few years back, they had some sort of a clause where I believe um, buyers of that car were not allowed to sell it for a period of time or else, yeah, they, they face legal action, basically. So they, 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 they put a stop to flipping, which I think... Clearly, there were some challenges in court, and I mean, I can't even imagine in Europe. I, I don't know how the heck they would enforce that, right? But um, you know, I I don't know what the brands do because I do think like it it has made me start to look negatively upon Rolex and negatively in the sense that I really, I, I like their watches because after you get through all the hype and everything, they make a really good watch. Yeah, they, they do. It, it's just a fantastic watch and, but it is darn annoying. Yeah. It's really annoying. Um, I, I also remember this, the GT thing. I remember um, watching a documentary about the, uh, about the car and how they said something like two years, I think they could not sell it for two years. And when I was doing some research for this episode, I also came across a few articles which specifically talked about the gray market in the car industry mm. and how the car industry as a whole, and of course I'm not a car journalist, so I don't have the inside info, but what, what these articles told me is that, or this research is that the car industry was fighting quite successfully to kill the gray market. I think whereas Ferrari will cut you off, won't they? If yeah. you, if you sell. Yeah. 
Yeah. Whereas it almost feels like certain brands in the watch industry feed the gray market. It's not that they they want to stop it. They actually want to, um, you know, one way or the other benefit from it and feed it. So it's completely different than what you see in the car industry, at least for certain brands anyways. Well, we know we know with pretty much every watch brand out there, there are models that sell really well and there are models that don't sell very well. And the gray market is a an outlet for those that don't sell well at some point, isn't it? So it's it's give and take, yeah? Sure. So Sure, and of course a watch is like, you know, 3 to 5 to 10,000 euros compared to a $400,000 Ferrari, you know. So it's obviously a different different commodity but but that's not the point um i think yeah and then and then you get into these words like uh we were joking about it before rarity and scarcity which i i think are kind of cringeworthy and they they make me laugh a little because i don't care um if you're not able to get a rolex submariner um they're not rare are they <laughs> no <laughs> they don't seem rare no yeah. No, I don't think so. Rare if you want to get one, you can get one. Yeah, rare to find at your AD, but it's not as if they're rare in terms of their none being made. Yeah. I think so. exclusivity is a better word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so but that comes down to money, only money, right? If you can pay the 20, 30, 50% on top of your retail price, then you can get it. But that's That has always been the case with watches, with cars, with boats with houses with anything so yeah it's it's more exclusive than it is scarce or rare i agree with you yeah and and it's a strange phenomenon because i i mean i'm sure both of you guys certainly you balash um you know with your interest in vintage as well i mean you've there are probably dealer sites that you've looked at forever just to you know kind of see what what's out there also to see what things are selling for and it feels like five or 10 years ago, a lot of those sites had vintage watches and there was really never anything new. Now, um, they've got a mix of, of new Rolex, new Patek and new Vacher or Vacheron Audemars, Royal Oaks and things like that mixed in with the vintage. And it always strikes me as funny to read the same descriptions about rare, um, <laughs> with the brand new watch next to you know, rare for a vintage piece, because in my view, it's a very, very different, the word shouldn't be used for both. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about this yesterday, I think, with you know, or even before we started the recording, like a vintage watch is rare because probably back in the day, maybe 50,000 pieces were made or 10,000 pieces were made 50, 60 years ago. And those are gone now because they're old, they fell apart, they got destroyed whatever the case may be and so finding a rare vintage watch is it's it, that's really a rare watch um as you said finding a rare rolex for example is just like yeah finding it it's rare to find one uh for the for the the, the 80 price but it's not a rare watch at all you can you can you know you can go on to ebay or chrono 24 or whatever gray market dealer and you you'll be able to find 50 60 pieces if I look at certain vintage watches, I will not be able to find one single piece. Not for thousand, not for ten thousand, not for hundred thousand, because it's just simply not there. Th- that's rare. Or there's maybe one uh, offered by Philips or whatever, you know, or watches of Knightsbridge. 
or two I've seen. For, you know, I do research on, on vintage Angulus. Maybe you, I mean, Mike, you know that. I don't want to get back into this topic all the time, but I did, I just the other day, I um, um, I have a, an Excel sheet, a research sheet on a, a solid gold case chronodatos. Mm-hmm. And there's like 12, I think, or 13 watches in my Excel sheet. Wow. That's all. And I've went through eBay. I went through auction houses. I went through everything. I've collected 13 watches. That's rare. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I, I know, um, I'm sure I've been, we, we've been in the same boat before. You get your eye on a certain vintage watch and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And then you go out to look for it and yeah, you can't find it. Not at any price. Yeah. So very, very yeah, different. That, and, that, and that's rare. That's a rare watch, right? Because it's a vintage watch. You don't, you can't find it. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like it's not out there. Whereas if you want the latest Rolex, I'm sorry, I'm just bashing Rolex, but it's not, not only them, but that's an easy example. They are out there. It's just so expensive, yeah. but that's not rare. That doesn't make it rare. That makes it, as York said, exclusive because it's not seven or 8K, it's 15K. But if you have 15K, you can choose. And if you're in the US, you can choose if you want to deal it from New York or Atlanta, Georgia, or California, somebody from Europe. You have 15, 20 choices. With the vintage watches, you said you have zero choices. So, so, so I wrote this article a few months back, um, basically asking people, you know, if they, if they walked into an AD and sitting there was, you know, name, name the, the highly desirable steel Rolex. Um, and they actually went in to go buy something else. Yeah. And, um, you know, or, or yeah, they could kind of swing it or whatever, but didn't really want it. Um, would you just, would you buy that GMT site? you know, just right away and, and flip it, what would you do? Or, or would you say, ah, I'm a watch person at heart. I'm going to leave this here and kind of hope that somebody who actually wants it buys it or would you go buy it and flip it? You're asking me or your, well, both of you, <laughs> your, your, your go for it because I'm going to, my, my answer is dependent on yours. You're going to have to think about this one, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not really. Not really. I mean, no, I, um, that's a good question. Um, like the article I was referring to uh, before, um, I'm not the, the guy that runs into a, a Rolex AD, but given, given the chance, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I would probably say I'll just leave it there. I'm not eager enough to, uh, to buy it and then flip it. Um, call me stupid, call me naive. Um, that's not why I'm into watches, not at all. Um, uh, if I would be in it to uh, to make a buck, then I would be more active uh, doing that just than just running into an AD and uh, seeing seeing that one Rolex for sale. Um, I guess that's just thinking out loud how I would uh, would answer that question now. But put me in the situation, and I'll I'll give you a call, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Balash, I know you, Cream. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. I, I was thinking maybe, well, either leave it there, like York, or get it, but don't flip it, you know? Just stash it. One to rock, one to stock, like the sneaker guys do. But, um, 
Always wear your sneakers, brothers. Always wear I, your sneakers. In, in, exactly. It's Fat Joe. Fat Joe told <laughs> yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> um, after licking the sole of his uh, Jordan Olympics. <laughs> My goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I wouldn't flip it. I, I don't think so. I might, I might buy it and, and keep it and contemplate about wearing it, not wearing it, wearing it, not wearing it, or I'll just leave it there. But I would not flip it. I, I, I guess it's the, sure it's the question that. also not um, is it a is it a Rolex model which you would wear anyway? Uh, yeah. That probably answers the question for a large part. Yeah. So like for me, for a Batman, if I were gonna buy it, I would flip it immediately. I just don't that watch just does not appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Um the Pepsi, I, I think I'd probably buy it and keep it because I like that watch. I don't I don't lose sleep over it, you know. I I, I thought it was a, a nice release, and I like the Jubilee. I like the colors and everything. I've, I've been a noted critic of, you know, Rolex cases and just kind of blo- the blockier looks that have, have come about the last 10 years or so. But I like it enough that I think I'd keep it, um, and I'm just not really good at selling anything. So even if I didn't wear it very much at some point, I'd probably, like you said, Balash, I'd probably just end up putting it aside. Yeah, you know, I, I, Jorg and I just talked about this yesterday. I just sold a, a new old stock vintage watch that I have because I bought it new old stock, more or less, and I just, just. It was nice to have it. I just, I just never wore it because I was too afraid of scratching it. So in the end, I ended up selling it and, and putting the money towards something else. Um, that's kind of, I mean, th- that's sort of a very specific thing, though, right? Because it was new old stock, and um, yeah, you said you were afraid of scratching it, right? And it sounds like you didn't love it so much that you, you were sad to see it go in the end, either, right? Yeah, I mean, but imagine you wanting a vintage watch, something that you have your eyes on for a long time, and then a new old stock model comes up for sale, and you can buy it. And then you buy it, would you wear it or would you keep it new old stock? Because you know that once you start wearing it, you know, the the, the, the value were obviously going to go down, by, I don't know, 15, 20, 30%. But that's really a piece you really, really wanted. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's also why, I mean, people would probably throw tomatoes at me for this, you know, because you've got your people out there who love the post and say condition, condition, condition. And I'm not that person. I'm originality, but I don't mind a bit of honest patina, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then I really don't worry about uh, adding a, a little scratch here or, you know, whatever. But, it's a good question. I I don't really know if I own any new old stock vintage watches, so I've never really had to care. Now, funny thing. I mean, I I can't remember if I've mentioned on this podcast, but I guess it was like, boy, it it was probably sometime after the last recession in the U S you know, the 08, 09 or the global recession, I guess. Um, I think around that time, 09, my dad got a call from the AD about a black, uh, stainless Daytona. And cause he had always told it was a place that, um, you know, we'd, we'd gone to for years and he just told the manager, he said, yeah, if you got one in, you know, let me know. And cause they were already tough to find there, but in the U S it was never, you know, 
one year or five years. It was just sort of, yeah, when we get one, we'll call you. Um, and he, and he got a call and, um, he went and bought it. And I remember this was like the last year they were below $10,000 list. Um, but he's never worn it. He never has. Um, he literally bought it because he's like, well, you know, at least in my history and, and it's proven true since then, this has been a pretty rock solid thing to buy. And I was like, dad, why don't you just wear it? And okay. He has other watches to choose from. Um, but no, never wore it. Has, has still never worn it. So, yeah, but it's not something that he wanted, right? It's and that, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I I bought that watch, that vintage watch, the new old stock one, because it was a good buy and because it, I was interested in it. It was not on top of my list, but I was interested. And then I got it, and it was really in, you know, it was exciting to see something that was like a a time capsule, pretty much. And it was from Omega, obviously. And but then then I just every time I went to the to the box, I just picked something else. I picked something else. I picked something. I said, ah, "Okay, I, I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it." And you know what? I just keep it. And then something else came up, and I said, "Okay, I really want that one, which is a new watch, by the way." And so that I have to balance the books, and I have to sell this one. And and there's one thing that came to my mind. Um, remember our our friend Jeff said, uh, Mike. At one point, he said, um, I really don't mind. I think um, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but he said something. I really don't mind overpaying for a new old stock watch, but it's just, I mean, it's new old stock as as long as it's with the old owner, because as soon as I get it, I'm going to start wearing it. I don't care. And I mean, when it comes to, you know, vintage watches and especially vintage horses, uh, Jeff knows his stuff, right? And he said, I, I don't care. I, I wear my watches, even if there's new old stock. Yeah. Fred, Fred on the Breitling side is the same. So, yeah. Jorg, you, you, we've been drowning you out. Did you want to add anything? No, I guess I agree with us guys. I would also wear it. I mean, a good good example is uh, uh, our uh, our boss head honcho Robert John, who has his 1977 Speedmaster, right? That was um, pretty much new old stock, um, and I think. Um, he started wearing it not too long ago and he wears it with a lot of joy and pride. And if the story is there and if you really wanted it, that's what Balas basically said in his question. If you really wanted the watch, why not wear it? Then it becomes your story, right? It's your watch. It's the, the reason you want it is, is, is a personal reason. So, um, but I get what Balas is saying. If, um, if you're not tempted enough to, to actually wear it on multiple occasions, yeah, maybe then that's a sign as well, just to keep it there. I mean, it's as simple as that. And, um, I don't know. I haven't been in the situation where I actually haven't worn any watches. I mean, um, I have a couple of vintage pieces, which I proudly wear, but um, I don't know. It's, um, it's, I, I think it would be a nice uh, starting point to, to wear your watches and wear your sneakers. I, I think that uh, if you really wanted a, that watch, and we can move on from vintage, but if you really wanted that vintage watch, and you get it new old stock, you're going to wear it because you wanted that watch. If you found the watch with that's new old stock, maybe it's a good investment, and then you want to, you know, um, you want to act like a dealer and buy it and then keep it and maybe in a few years sell it for a premium, but that's a different story. But then you're not a collector or not, you're, you're not acting as a collector. You're acting as a as a, as a watch flipper or a dealer, an investor. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah fair. I mean, I, I think... I think about it like some of these these uh, very desirable watches. I I don't dislike, for example, the Royal Oak. It's okay. I like the Nautilus better. Um, I, I'd I'd wear that. Um, you know, with Rolex. I I think if I saw a stainless Daytona, I I'd buy that. Um, I actually like it. I, there are things about it I don't like, but I think I like it enough that I'd buy it and, and try to wear it and see how it goes. Um, that sounds like a real hardship by the way, but, um, (laughs) I, 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 I'd see what it looks like. Um, and then probably the Pepsi, the other pieces, I don't know. I don't think so. Like if I knew I saw a new stainless Submariner, I would not buy it. I I just don't, I don't need it. Don't need it. So. But do you own any pieces, Mike, that you don't wear because you want to keep them in good condition? Oof. No. No, I, if I don't wear them, it's just because I, you know, I wear something else or, but it's not because of condition. No, there's nothing. Okay. Uh, other than like, if I know the environment I'm going into, isn't going to be good for the watch, but I don't, I'd never not wear a watch. I mean, and that goes from, you know, $20 Seiko I have to, you know, whatever vintage piece that, that I, that I wear. There's nothing. And that's how it, and that's how it should be. Yeah. That that's how that's that's why you're a watch guy. You, you buy the watch because you like it, and maybe you don't wear it too often. But if you if you want it, you could, right? It's not like ah, oh, I really love this watch, but ah, it's brand new. I don't want to wear it. No, if you want it, you could wear it, yeah. and and you would. And that's the difference between someone like you or me or Jorg or someone who's who okay. says I yeah maybe the guy who bought my my new old stock watch, you know, wants to keep it and, and he's, you know, contemplating about sending it in five years when, I don't know, good, good for you, you know, if you made some money with that. But well, probably will be, this podcast would be the Financial Times podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, we're not investors. It's as simple as that. True, true. So j- just moving on here, um, you know, one other thing I wanted to bring up and this is, I think, um, a topic that I, I read more and more about. And I think everyone who listens knows that, um, I'm a fan of, of Ming watches and okay. Forgetting the fact that, uh, the, their site, you know, in order to buy the watches, uh, sometimes people have issues and in, in making a payment. Um, but you know, there's a lot of concern about the number of, of watches that they make and that people can't get them. Um, I wanted to, yeah, just get your guys thoughts. I mean, should, should a brand answer to that and say, yeah, we should just make as many as the market can, can, can suck up or no, we should stick to our, uh, stick to our guns and say, if we're going to make 200 of them, we're going to make 200 of them. But, but do they do this because they want to control um, artificially the market or because, I don't know, there's some production issue and I don't know, maybe the supplier can only make so many cases or movements or I don't know. That could also be the case, right? But but I guess I ask this question, does it matter? I mean, I guess it. if you can, I mean, I think that if I want to make a watch and people say, I, I, you know, we could sell 5,000 of those, but it's dependent on a, a bezel or a dial and the supplier can only make 500 then that's it right 
I mean, they can only make 500. What can you do? You can look for another supplier or you can hire another watchmaker and, and put the watch together faster or whatever the case may be. Uh, I, I mean, it's always good when demand is higher than, uh, than supply. And eventually that might end up them upping the number. Mm-hmm. But, but I think if it's, if it's not your fault, then it's, it's kind of okay because then you as a, as a consumer can wish that or, or can hope that this will this will uh, go up in the future now if you limit the production because you want to make your watch unique uh, that's a different story i think well i mean i think they do seek to preserve value and they they of course also claim they're not a huge brand um there are issues and sometimes sourcing things or at least getting that number of watches built within a certain amount of time and they, they want to move on to their next design. Um, so I think they've got, they, they've certainly listed reasons and okay. Sometimes people take issue with them, but let, let's flip it around. You know, they're, they're, tr- they're doing something that's, you know, on the, on the higher end. But if we take, you know, the brand, we kick things off with here, Unimatic, that Jorg uh, likes, well, they, they limit their production. And one could argue with the, the types of components and perhaps where they're sourcing some things that they don't really have to limit anything, do they? Sure. No. Um, but since, I mean, this is also um, another question is if you're a startup brand, if you're a relatively new brand, obviously they started out producing low numbers to see where they're at, if there is a demand for your product anyway. Um, and they have been upping the numbers slightly on their uh, on their uh, watches, especially the uh, the popular Modelo Uno. Um, so yeah, yeah, I've seen them grow over this last year. Um, but I mean, the question to you guys is as well: Is it mentally uh, a different uh, a different thing when a brand has always made limited numbers, so you know what you're getting yourself into if you want one of these watches? Either it is a Ming or it is a Unimatic or whatever. Um, uh, independent or smaller brand it is is it more uh, are you likely to accept it um, earlier than it is um, limited issue, sorry limited production of um, bigger brands or limited availability no, there's nothing you can do if they always done that then that's how it's going to be that's used it. To. that's it I mean, I don't have a problem with the fact that a Unimatic is a limited edition or a me- what's the numbers on your diver uh, Mike uh I think 200 or 300 of them, something like that. 200, I think, uh, of this one. Yeah. And do you have any, I mean, obviously speculation, have any clue how much higher the demand would be? I mean, could they sell a thousand? Maybe, but, you know, if you look at them, for example, and, and a lot like Unimatic in some cases, they sell their watches out pretty immediately. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they'd really want to be in business to sit on 400 watches, you know? That's it, right? And I guess the answer to the question is also, if you can up the numbers, can you also um, maintain your quality, maintain your um, brand image, maintain the, yeah. the rate at which you introduce new watches? Um, hey, if that's the way you can grow and control your growth, there's nothing wrong with it, is it? And then obviously uh, we as consumers have to have to deal with that. Um, um, I think if I would own a brand, I would always um, like to control my own growth rather than have demand uh, control what I do. So 
uh, having said that, that gives me a uh, some kind of peace of mind when you want a uh, want a, a limited production watch. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you from a brand building point of view, um, what what would you what would you say? You know. But you kind of answered the question, but yeah, I mean, for, there's there's tons of examples, uh, not not specifically in the uh, in the watch industry, but there's tons of examples of um, in the clothing industry when demand is high and uh, these brands start producing crazy numbers uh, until the hype is over. Um, it's done. Yeah. Then it's done. Your brand is is gone forever, and that's obviously what all these brands are really careful of and um that's that's why it's an exclusive product that's why it's luxury luxury brands they want to keep the demand higher than uh, the actual uh, offering so yeah it's always going to be there um whether you're frustrated by it um that's up to you i guess it's not up to the brand specifically to answer that i mean even with rolex same thing are you getting frustrated by the fact that you cannot get a rolex some people really are um i for one, I'm not. Uh, if I want one, I'll, I'll get frustrated at the moment I want one. But uh, um, from a brand perspective, I get it. You want to have your growth controlled and um, according to your rules and not the rules of the consumer, I guess. Yeah, and I think there's but – but I also think there's something to it when these brands do that. You also feel a little safer as someone who does get one or I, – I would even say if you're someone who doesn't get that one um, – and and maybe you get a something else they release later, or you know you're thinking about buying a used one at some point. Okay, maybe maybe higher than retail price. But I look at those brands and I say, even Unimatic, which which I obviously is on a different price level than than a Ming or some of the other limited brands. But okay, I, I have Damn, pretty good faith getting interesting. that they're not going to remake that watch again. You know, as someone who either own some of these limited watches or even if I've not bought one and, and like the watch and maybe wish I could have it, I at least look upon these types of brands with some, I look upon them favorably because so far some of these brands, at least they haven't gone back and remade something that they said was limited. You know, it feels like if you buy it, you know, you are actually getting something that is unique and you can trust Mm -hmm. it. Um, and you know, I think that if you're in the, you're if you're a brand, your the drive you have is to create timepieces that you love, that you designed, that you dreamt of, and that's it. If you're in the market as a brand to finesse the market, that's gonna you know eventually fire back at you. You know what sure. I mean? Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Well, it's interesting as well. I. Um... I did an interview with uh, Giovanni Moro from Unimatic, and he also said the reason we actually move on fairly quickly is because we want to do new watches ourselves. We, Like you said, Mike, with Ming as well. Yeah. Um, there's probably a lot more to explore when it comes to Ming and, and Unimatic, and there's a lot of these brands that just are young guys that have a ton of ideas which they would like to work on rather than st- st- being stuck at this one uh, watch or a couple of watches that will uh, will have create this high demand, and I get that. And um, he says uh, also, he says uh, we are collectors themselves. Him and the other owner are collectors themselves. So they say, well, we understand how how uh, how nice it can be to collect watches. So that's what we want to give our consumers as well. It's just this principle of you're buying something um, that's 
exclusive as a collector, and I get that, and it makes it more sympathetic or makes it more um, uh, even more attractive to actually buy Unimatic if you're into that brand. I don't know. For Ming, it could be the same. Uh, probably there's a uh, there's a ton of people that actually start calling themselves Ming collectors, right? Mm. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you know, you can't blame a brand uh, for trying to make money. I mean, if they 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 make 500 watches because that's they they need to make 500 watches so they can break even and start a new production, then of course that's that's understandable. Sure. So, you know, maybe Unimatic, the guys behind it, they it's a hobby for them, so they don't necessarily have to do it. But if they if a brand sees, wow, this this watch really sells like hotcakes, then we can make another run and another run. Not oh, because no. we're mean, bored or not bored, but because we actually have to yeah. make money so we can do something that we want further down the line. I understand what you mean. No, I mean by these guys being collectors, I meant to say they are watch collectors themselves. So they know what it is to collect watches to be like us. Um, it's not that the the Unimatic brand is a hobby for them very much. It's a job, so it's a full time job mm -hmm. for these guys because it's uh, it's grown exponentially in uh, in the last couple of months and years. So um, no, that that was more referring to the fact that they understand what it is to be a watch collector and and chase after watches and and um, being. Uh, um, being part of this whole luxury industry that has limited availability. Interesting topic. All right. Well, any other things to add before we uh, we skedaddle out of here? Wear your watches. I mean, I, it's it's good to be you know, I guess sensible when it comes to watches and and prices and buying them and, and selling them. But but we're we're those of you guys who are listening to this and we here we're watch guys. We love watches. We wear them. We read about them. We write about them. So this for us, this is this is not a bit. At least for me, this is not a business. So just wear your watches. Amen to that. So with that, Jorg, we want to thank you for joining us. And thank you, Balash. Thank you for I guess to, yeah, yeah. I guess next time we were talking maybe to talk about uh, vintage dive watches next time. So nice. Perhaps nice, we'll nice. we'll go into that one of our other favorite topics and. Maybe we also talk about some some reissues at some point and, and what we think about that topic. Maybe we get Jorg back on for that one. And um, I'd love to. It was uh, it was nice actually uh, talking to you guys. Yeah, and hopefully the uh, the Wi-Fi situation in the fatherland here will uh, will will get a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want to. Uh, sign off here and uh, say thanks everybody for listening so this is a wrap and we'll talk to you soon Mike out Balash out York out